Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Before we get to our guest today, Father Ronald Rollheiser. Intern, tell us what our sponsor is today. Our sponsor is the E3 Conference. Do you know when that is? It's October 4th through the 7th in exactly. Dallas, Texas. The E3 Conference. We had a live podcast from there uh, last year, and if you don't know what it's about, it is about equipping, encouraging, and empowering, hence the three E's, right. churches and families to have better conversations about faith and sexuality. This year's theme is building community. How can we help our churches be more inclusive and embrace our LGBTQ siblings? Now, the speaker's there. Do you remember any of the speaker's intern? I do not. Uh, myself. Thank you for remembering that. Uh, Justin Lee, founder of the Gray, Gray? I think it's actually the Gay Christian Network. And a popular speaker, author of the book Torn, along with uh, Sean Palmer, Pat Mills, others. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's going to be pretty good. Yeah, pretty yeah. good. When is it again? October 4th through the 7th. And for more information, where can they go? The show notes. The show notes. You know what the show notes are? Uh-uh. Like the thing on iTunes that like describes the show? There's a link in there. You click on the link and you'll go to their website. Okay. That'll be good for you. Uh, okay, so this is, uh, we're going to do a wrap-up podcast for the uh, June wrap-up, but after this, we're going to go on a little break from the podcast for the month of July. What do you think about that, intern? I think that'll be good for you. Why is that? I think, uh, I think you're stressed. I think you need to take a break, I'm sit not. back, and... Why would you say I'm stressed? Because you're mean. I'm not mean. I, I feel like, one to ten, how good of a boss am I? Of a boss, you're probably an eight. An eight? Yeah. What about as a person? Uh, I I probably shouldn't okay. answer that question. All right. Well, if anyone would like, you have your phone on during the. Ad. Is my okay, thank you. My haircut. Okay. Um, speaking of cutting, uh, if anyone would like to be my intern for the rest of the summer, the position seems like it's about to be open. And without further ado, from San Antonio, Texas. I mean, he's really from Canada, but here he is, Father Ronald Rollheiser. Friends, it's uh, the return of Father Ronald Rollheiser. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you today? Good to be here. Thanks, Luke. Good? Well, I'm good. How's San... Well, hot Texas afternoon here. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's great to have another Texan on the phone. And how long yeah. have you been down in Texas now? 13 years. Finishing my 13th year here at the school. 13 years. Okay. Uh, so you're fully converted to being a Texan, Mexican food. You drink salsa for breakfast. I mean, you say y'all. Do you have it all down yet? Uh, I'm still working on the language, the you all part. I still, you know, I'm a Canadian, so there's a lot of A and a boat in there. So I got to work on the accent. Okay. Well, when you mix a Canadian with a Texan, what happens there? Like, what do you just become a very friendly person with boots on? Or, like, how does that work? Well, we become friendly with boots on, and then, as our prime minister said, we're reasonable and polite. So we get the two together, you know? <laughs> okay. and, we, and we say A a lot. Well,. D- so how long do you think it'll take you to work out the A out of your, your vernacular? Do you think it'll stay forever? A couple more years. Okay, a couple more years. Okay. Well, I, uh, I saw on one of my friend's uh, Twitter feed that he got a copy of your new book a week ago. And I thought, oh my goodness, I didn't know you even had a new book out. So I downloaded it, read it, and I, I, one of the things that's con- like surprising to me, like I read your work and I'm so... It connects so strongly to me. I wish more people read your stuff. And so I'm, I, I don't, 
I'm surprised at how much your book connects with me, that there isn't a larger group of, like the white evangelical males that read Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr I, told me that he has this massive demographic of readers that he never thought he would have of white evangelical males. Yeah. How, do you find many in your, of your readers who come from a young evangelical kind of background? Surprisingly, it's a surprise to me. So I just gave a, a, a retreat at a place called Laity Lodge just a week and a half ago, and there were like 80 or 90 people, and probably um, the vast majority of them were, were white evangelicals, mm-hmm. you know. Some young, some, you know, not so young. Um, but, you know, it's surprising to be popularity with them, as well as with um, mainline Protestants, particular Presbyterians. I'm not sure why they've picked, on, picked up on me, but they have. And, uh, and, and I'm glad because I, I really believe that... Uh, Jesus is pretty universal, and you know, and you know, I, I would hope that we can, uh, that that Christ takes it across denominational lines, you yeah. know. So I'm, 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 I'm flattered by it, mm-hmm. you know. There's a, but, I, but but also I'm happy about it, you know. Yeah, you've got a section in the book where I think you're writing to maybe a Baptist pastor friend. And you write a note and says, to a fellow Christian, a brother in the body of Christ, a good friend from whom I'm separated by 500 years of misunderstanding. Yeah. So you think... Yeah, after 500 years, I hope we can move beyond that. Your question. No, yeah, I hope so too. Uh, The the word misunderstanding. Some people would see it as something bigger than a misunderstanding. Why did you choose the word misunderstanding to describe the, the differences? Well, because that's, you know, most Christians through the years have been sincere. And, um, you know, and, and we've, we've been separated from each other. And more and more, we are beginning to realize how much of it is about a misunderstanding. So, you know, if I want to get theological, for instance, uh, for years, you know, we thought we were different in terms of faith and works, mm-hmm. that Catholics emphasized works and Protestants emphasized faith and so on. And we found it was just we were using the language differently. We were using the way James writes it in the Epistle of James, and they were using it the way Paul. And, and hmm. James and Paul weren't at odds with each other. But if you read the letter to the Romans and you read the, yep. the you know the Epistle of James, it sounds like they're contradicting each other. They're not, you know. Hmm. Uh, see, because uh, Paul says you're not saved by works; you're saved by faith. And James says you're saved by by works. But when Paul says you're not saved by works, he's talking about works of the law. That you know, um, a little, little bit the way Richard Rohr puts it. Richard Rohr says there isn't a, a single thing you can do to make God love you more, and also not a single thing you can do to make God love you less. Yeah. You know. So, yep. So in that sense, it's not that we can do works that please God and we get to heaven because we do good works. You know. Yeah. Actually, we should do good works because God loves us, not to make Him love us. You know. But. And, uh, but it's kind of fitting that you see tension or different language, even in our sacred texts of, of the Bible. So, of course, you're going to find that in our churches, as we're going to also sometimes be talking right past each other. And so, yeah, it, it makes right. sense. And that's, that's misunderstanding, Luke. That's what misunderstanding yep. We're talking past each other, you know? Yeah. You also say that we... With, with, a fear, with truth on both sides, you know? Yeah. But, but there's but there's a truth that we that we all share and and you talk about how we focus yeah. too much on differences when at the center we share the same essentially the same faith what do you think makes yeah, people you know, fo- it, it, 
Sorry. No, I was going to say, wh- what do you think makes people focus on the differences instead of the essential commonalities that we have? Well, you know, that, 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 that's a good question, but it's also not, it's only not true only in religion. Notice that's what's happening in our country. You know, like right now, almost both sides are exclusively focused on our differences. Uh, you know, the, the differences are, are what bite. Mm-hmm. But if you take like Christianity, I, I, I believe 85 to 90 percent of uh, we agree on, and we're, we're different at about 10 percent, and we spent 500 years fighting about the 10 percent. Yeah. And then even realizing there that a lot of it was based on a misunderstanding, you know, um, not just in faith and works, but the Eucharist and real presence and all kinds of things and so on. Yeah. That, um, um, and, you know, it, 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 there's a long history, um, and, and, and history isn't easily undone, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, when, when the Reformation happened, it wasn't just religious. There was, it was also political, and you, know, you, had, you had religious wars for a hundred years, uh, that's going to focus you on your differences. Yeah. 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 Uh, but it's true. And look, you know, it's true all over. Look at our country right now. We're just, the news at night, everything's about our differences. No. It's not about what, you know, and, and yet we have so much commonality. I agree. You know? I agree. And I would love to, to see the church be a voice of reason and unity in a divided country where a church could be a place that people who are left and right politically can can share Eucharist together, and that that would be the most unified time. It, it doesn't always happen, but I would sure love to see that taking place a little bit more. Yeah. Um, one of the things I, th- I think that we miss is that Catholics, Protestants, I, I think each of us have strengths that we bring to the table. And when we focus on our differences, we lose the ability to learn and to hear the voice of God in each other. And one of the things that I've heard the voice of God through your work for me is the way that you've been able to articulate spirituality and uh, the language of the soul, which in some ways I didn't have even the vocabulary to to grapple with. And so I feel like that when I first read, um, oh, Holy Longing was the book we talked about a couple years ago. Um, What is the book that, um, that's been out 15 years probably? Um, I just forgot to talk. Holy Longing and Sacred Fire was the one that followed that. Okay, yeah. The Holy Longing was the one that's been out for a while. Sacred Fire came out four years ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. When I first read Holy Longing, it it was as if, like, the seas parted, and all of a sudden I was able to walk on dry dry ground for the first time. And so, you you know, your language of the soul, I I didn't have any of that. You define soul as, like, the fire and the glue. Like, it it gets us up, and then, and it keeps us together. Mm -hmm. What do you think about... What do you think, I don't, know, I don't want to say that Catholics have the ability to use more of the creative language than the Protestants do, but do you feel like there's something that enables you to be able to communicate that so, so skillfully? Well, you know, the, the, question, you know, the question of language, it's interesting. You know, I teach courses here on that and so on. I was helped a lot by Henry Nouwen, you know, the yeah. famous spiritual writer. Of course. It's interesting, you know, we look at, at Henry Nouwen, he did for, for a whole generation— he developed a genre, you know. Um, mm-hmm. well, I'll give you an example. You know, there's, there's a, a folk singer in Canada, a religious folk singer called Stephen Bell. And Stephen Bell tells his story. He said he grew up, he was the son of a Baptist minister. And he said, and he was a very talented musician. He said, and I didn't want to do Christian. He said, I want to do something religious. I didn't want to do Christian rock. He said, that's not me. And I, and I wasn't zoned for church music. And he said, I, 
I didn't know what to do. He said, and one day I heard John Michael Talbot sing. I thought, that's it. That's it. I could do that. And he's done very well. The same, you know, before Henry Nouwen, we had, there was a religious writing which has its own power. So, you know, in the, in the Protestant evangelical tradition, you have people like Billy Graham, mm-hmm. you know, or classic, we have the imitation of Christ and so on. Catholics had Fulton Sheen. And that's a good language, but it's a different language. It's, um, it's, it's a biblical language. It's a church language. It has its own power. Um, but, but, you know, Henry now tried to say, Let, let's write a, try to lang- language of soul. Let's try to... Uh, yeah. And Jesus, you know. And so he helped us develop a language. And, um, for instance, he himself would rewrite his books five or six times over to try to get them simpler, you know, which is also... You know, mm. if you look at some of my earlier writings, they're much more complex. I'd use a lot more psychological words and technical words, and the longer I've written, the more I realize, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot for simplicity all the time and kind of simplicity of soul, just, you know, everybody knows mm-hmm. what fire means, and everyone knows what glue means, you know? Yeah. If you start talking about principles of contingency and so on, uh, you're <laughs> in a different part, you know? And, and you're able to, uh, so I see that in your writing, that you've done that, and I, I can see how Henry Nouwen was on the vanguard of that. In a lot of ways, Henry Nouwen is um, is like the gateway drug to the to the Catholic writers for some of us Protestants. Like we can, yeah. for some reason, Nouwen was was one of the first ones for me personally that I read and going, wait a minute, Protestants aren't the only ones who've been doing this and aren't the only ones who have something to say. And w- what I found was that simple language that was n- not simple in its content, but simple in its its accessibility. And yeah. like like it, it has to be simple without being simplistic. Which yeah. is what, what scriptures, you know, Jesus' parables are the simplest thing in the world, but you, you, you write libraries of books off of them. They're not mm-hmm. simplistic. You know, uh, Mary had a little lamb is simply, it's also simplistic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Jesus' parables about, you know, just the other day, you know, what Jesus says, you know, like uh, the gospel was, you know, the king was having like a mustard seed and so on. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's a very simple parable, but you can spend the rest of your life meditating on it. You yeah. Know? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the, the prodigal son story is a simple story. A dad loves his son and r- runs after him, but it's yeah, yeah. it's it's quite complex. But the language that that you you've been giving me is this language of, of spirituality. And so I I grew up, you know, you need Jesus. If you, if you die tonight, Jesus saves you from going to hell and spending eternity there. But what I didn't have, and so that's what I started with. But what I think some of the, these other voices have helped me with is this understanding of. There is this, to use your language, this holy longing. There is, you, you, you quote a poet, uh, Annie Sexton, who talked about this yeah. gnawing, pestilent rat, where there's, there, there's something inside of you that, that's scratching and clawing for something more transcendent than what we have. Yeah. But not all of us have the ability to, to have words to express that. Well, what? But we all, it's, it's almost like this common language, this, this common experience that we need language to all be able to communicate with each other this, this, this shared experience. Yeah. Well, you know, look, look but like I said at the beginning, see, we, I grew up to, you know, see, we have a, a Christian language. Mm-hmm. That, that it's the language of, of iconography, and it's really powerful. It's poetic. So you say, you know, um, Jesus is the Lamb of God in whose blood I'm washed clean, you know. That's just mm-hmm. the deep, deep, central truth. But, you know, it, that needs to be unpackaged. Like, first of all, Jesus wasn't a sheep, you know? So, okay, <laughs> already you know you're dealing with metaphor, you know? But yeah. see, that, that's like, like a, a meditation icon that you stare at, which we get because we're risking our lives on it. I always say, you know, like, 
the fact that Jesus died for my sins and is universal Savior, I'm risking my life on that. There isn't a theologian in the world who can explain that adequately. It's a powerful mm-hmm. mystery, you know. And see, so there is a struggle with language. Like, how do you, what does that mean? How do you explain that and so on? Realizing you'll never really fully explain it. But, you know, to, to try different languages of soul and so on, to, um, to say, what does it mean that Jesus died for our sins? What does it mean yeah. that Jesus is the Son of God, you know? What, what does that we're washed clean in his blood? What, what is blood and how, you know, yeah, I think that there's a rich meditation forever that has to take place on that, you know, which when yeah. we struggle with language, you know. Um, and so we, we have the biblical language, and that's our foundational language. That's, uh, um, I call it our, our, our iconic language that mm-hmm. is the truth. Um, and I, I have made this distinction. It's a truth we get but don't fully ever explain, you know. So yeah. I, I can I can hear Jesus died since I get it. I can't really explain it, you know. Um, it, it, well, because faith is deeper than our understanding, which I try yeah. to also say in this book. Yeah, I, one of the lines you have in the book is that inside us there is something the mystics call dark knowledge, namely an inchoate, intuitive gut sense within which we know and understand beyond what we can picture and give words to. Uh, yeah. You also reference a poet, uh, Robert Lat- Lacks, who says, uh, the task in life is not so much finding a path in the woods as of finding a rhythm to walk in. It's like, there's yeah. this rhythm. I love that, there- I love that line, you know? I, yeah. we, the, the path is actually laid out for us. We just have to mm-hmm. find our own rhythm to walk in that path. You know? yep. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Okay, okay, so you talk about, um, in your life, you were born with two loves. Uh, love of the pagan world and the love love of religion. Yeah. Uh, as a priest, how how long did it take you to be able to, to verbalize that? Because some people would think, as a priest, you can't say that you have a love for the pagan world and the things, the pleasures of the five senses. Do you feel like that's a something that people aren't really giving you room to say often? Well, you know, it. it <laughs> you know, when 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 in the book and the way you just said it. It can be jarring to a Christian to say, well, I was born with an incurable love for the pagan world. I was born with <laughs> an incurable love of God and so on. But, but they're, they're both important. You know, like, yeah. you know, it says in Scripture. Now, okay, well, first I want to answer your question. You say, how long did it take me to realize that? Well, you know, it took me um, half of a lifetime to, 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 uh, to integrate it. I mean, I'm still trying to integrate that, but half mm-hmm. of my life even to articulate that, you know. To, you know, because when you grow up as Christian, I think in many of our churches, we haven't got the permission to say that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you, you know, but eventually you realize we have to say it, because remember Scripture says so clearly, God is the author of all that is good, yeah. which means everything good in this world comes from God. And, you know, <laughs> and it, it, we, we, we can call it pagan or call it secular, we call it humanistic and so on, that doesn't erase it, you know, like, um, um, Scripture is very clear. Everything that's good, there's one author of all that's good in this world, and that's God. So, um, and, and, and notice how, and I say that in the book, how we, we, we are drawn so strongly to the things of the world and the things of the senses, um, because that, you know, that's the way God built us, because we, we are meant, we, we're not disembodied angels living in a... <laughs> In, in mm-hmm. a spiritual world, we're, we're, 
appeared yesterday, and I used to see, that we're not um, spiritual uh, human beings trying to be spiritual. We're spiritual beings trying to be human, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we are spiritual beings from our birth, as I see in the holy longing and so on. The deepest thing inside of us is our soul and the image and likeness of God. But God put us here. God is a good parent. Do you have kids? I've got three daughters. Yeah. See, as a parent, you didn't bring your children into the world as, as a test to see what they and go to heaven. You want them to flourish. You want them to be happy in this life, you know? Yeah. See, so that um, God puts us in this world not just as a test to see can we have faith, can we be faithful, can we go to heaven? Um, God is a good parent. God wants us to flourish. And so the, the good things of creation, now again, you know the word uh, discipleship, we, we, we sometimes forget that word comes from the word discipline. The yeah. disciple puts themselves under a discipline. So Christianity is a powerful discipline. It's just you have all these natural cravings and so on, and they're good, and the world's good, but it's got to be disciplined. It's going to be... Uh, I wrote a book some years ago I called Against an Infinite Horizon. And I said, you know, the, it, it's, it's not that God and the world oppose each other, so you don't you don't love God and alongside you love the world alongside of God. No, you, you, God is the, is the you love the world against atheism. See what atheism does? It has no horizon, so the world becomes it. It stops there. Mm-hmm. As Christians, we we don't reject the world, but you always see it against the infinity of God. You see, it's good, but you know it's 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 a much bigger picture we're always looking at. You know, see, so yep. you don't. See, that you have to choose, do I, love work, do I love the world or do I love God? Well, you're supposed to love both, you know? Mm-hmm. But if, if you love the world without an infant horizon, then it becomes idolatrous. That's what idolatry is. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, you know, see, so you, you we, we, we are meant to have strong pagan loves, but against this infinite horizon of God, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and um, because the pagan world is also God's world. God made it. Uh, it's not in opposition to him. Um, it can be neutral to him and so on. But, but, um, but our, our task as Christians, I think, I think that's a big thing we have to overcome in spirituality, is to somehow, um, that we always see the world as, as, you know, as an opposition to religion. You know? Whereas, in fact, the function of religion, as Jesus says, is to save the world. Remember what Jesus says, my flesh is food for the life of the world. Not necessarily even for the life of Christians. No. But Jesus came as a Christian church and churches. We are instruments to help God save the world, you know, not just ourselves. And so yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, I think that's one of the things we have to stretch ourselves on. I, I, yeah, I agree. And I think that we typically like to say, you know, that there's just God and there's the world and things of the world are the enemy and things of God are, are different. Yeah. But I think the spirituality that you're talking about is like this embodied spirituality that sees the goodness in creation. Uh, there's a line in the book in which you say, um, in every one of those explicit desires, there is present implicitly beneath the desire and as the deepest part of that desire, the longing for and pursuit of something more profound. Ultimately, we are longing for the depth that grounds every person and object, God. So the, even in the longing for the quote-unquote pagan world, there is a longing for the creator of that pagan world, which is God. And yeah. it's all pointing so, back. There, go ahead. Since I was 19 years old and began to study philosophy and so on, the, the, the dominant line that underlies all of my writing and, and my faith is from St. Augustine, who just says, 
you know, he begins his famous book, The Confessions, with the line, You've made ourselves from yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So, you know, we're restless for a lot of things, but ultimately, it's all in relationship to, you know, um, to God. You know, the, the heart is made for God, and, and you know, um, we want everything else in between, but God, God is the end game. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and in every longing, you know, uh, so, you know, the, the example using my other writings, because it's graphic, you know, so somebody used to think, I'm just, I'm longing for sex. Sex is what I want. And sex mm-hmm. is what the person wants, but ultimately in function of family, for community, for God, for, you know, uh, everything is, like I was saying, against that infinite horizon, you know. And that single line from Augustine is kind of the hermeneutic for all my work, you know. Mm-hmm. Like the holy longing. You know, the holy longing is just, even the expression is Augustine. Your longing is holy, because your longing is ultimately for God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Y- I- I'm actually ripping this part of your book off in my sermon on Sunday. The part that you talk about with Jephthah's daughter, and you talk yeah. about how this woman, terrible story, and it's uh, disturbing to us, rightly so, and Jesus would make us completely have a different perspective on, or would cause us to be disturbed by the story. But she, uh, her, her father makes a vow. He's going to sacrifice first, and then greets him on his way home from battle. He wins the battle, comes home, it's his daughter. He has to sacrifice, he, he believes he needs to sacrifice his daughter. And she says, do with me as, as you must, but let me go into the wilderness and mourn my virginity. And you have this great bit about how every one of us has that same experience where these longings that we have for this world, which ultimately should point us to God, um, they never really fully get realized right here. And so we all have to mourn our own loss. And even, you have this great line that, um, even if you're married, every one of us to some degree goes to bed alone. Like There's always this longing for the world that will never be realized in what we have. Fascinating. Yeah, the two things about that text, which has always been, <laughs> first of all, like I said, it, on the surface, that sounds like a pretty terrible text. And, uh, you know, I always, some of the Old Testament texts, they should have disclaimers. Like, yeah. they see a movie, and they say, no real horses died making this film. <laughs> with, yeah. with the Old Testament, some say, let's say, no real people died in this story, you know? These are stories of soul, you know, uh, and... Um, you know, and, and, and also, you know, I, don't, I once had Raymond Brown, the famous scripture scholar as a professor. He's a wonderful man, wonderful scholar. But he always said, for preachers, he said, those kinds of texts, he said, if you don't explain them, don't read them in church. They're just going to upset people, you know. Hmm. He said, these texts can be explained, you know. Um, but see, what I say in there, I give you, I, I'm not sure if I quote that there, but I'm, it's elsewhere in the book. But I, I want to give you a great quote from Carl Rahner. Carl Rahner once said, he yeah. says, in the torment of the insufficiency of everything you can attain, you ultimately learn that here in life there is a symphony. Nobody, like I said, everybody dies, partly the virgin. But mm-hmm. see, there, there's no full consummation in life, no matter how full your life is, you know? And, um, and see, that's what that story is, is illustrating. And so it's very important, the point I'm making is that we, we get in touch with that and that we, we grieve our inadequacies, our, our uh, inconsummations. Otherwise, oftentimes we turn bitter and we're yeah. blaming somebody or you're putting pressure on somebody. So, for instance, as a married person, um, you can love your wife and you can meet the most beautiful, wonderful woman in the world, but she can't be God to you, you know? She can't fulfill all of your desires, and if you put that on her, 
you're doing violence to her, you know? Or if, or if somebody tries to make you kind of, you have to make me happy, um, you can't do that fully. Only God can. And see, uh, and then we also, like some of us, we're hard on each other because in marriages or wherever, we're kind of, you know, this whole thing, you live happy ever after. Uh, you know, you live happy ever after sometime in the kingdom. But right now, there's always that inadequacy. And, and like this text, that it has to be mourned, it has to be grieved. Because um, when we grieve something, grieving takes away the hardness, it takes away the bitterness. Tears are soft, anger is hard. Yeah. Yeah, you, you talk about fear, anger, and sadness. That fear, unlike anger and sadness, is the only one that has no release valves. Yeah. And so we can, we can shed our tears and we can go punch a wall or you know, kick something and get rid of our anger if that's how you're going to do it. But fear is one you just have to just hold on to. What do yeah. you think? Why is, why is fear that way? Why can't we just get rid of it? Because, <laughs> because when we try, it doesn't work. <laughs> no, uh, you know, it's, it, it, I remember reading that in, 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 a, in a Dutch theology book. When I was in the, the, the guy says, uh, and, and, and written by a woman who, who was dying of uh, Lou Gehrig's disease and so on. She mm. says, like, uh, there's an answer to everything except fear. And in and, and that sense, fear has to be lived through. Um, as does a lot of, you know, there's a great line in the book of Lamentations that, you know, sometimes as a, as, as a preacher, I used it at a funeral or just with people when I send them a card, something terrible happens. And the book of Lamentations says, sometimes all you can do is put your mouth to the dust and wait. You know, uh, uh, you know it, 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 you're looking for an answer. You know, in our, we always believe there's an answer, something, somebody can lift this pain or somebody can lift it. And sometimes it can't be. It, it'll lift. Fear, lifts, anger, bitterness, so on. And, you know, uh, um, or, or just the heaviness of the death. You lose a loved one, and so on. Um, th- th- there's nothing you can do at the time to, to lift that, that, that kind of sadness, and so on. Uh, but it'll lift. It, it has to be lived through. You have to come to the other side with that. And sometimes it can take a long time. I remember a woman whose husband just out of the blue killed himself. Um, and she was, first of all, she was really angry, but she was really in a dark space for a couple of years, and she used to say to me, I'm a Christian, but this will never get better. I'll always feel like that. I said, no, no, the sun will shine sometime, but not yet. And we took her seven years. Today she's happily remarried, and, uh, and the sun comes back out. But during those years, she just had to endure it um, and to have to have friends and other people to help her. Just, um, and fear is like that. Fear, fear there's, there's no, uh, no, no answer. You know, and we can... We can falsely bolster our courage, you know, where you say, I'm not afraid of the dark, I'm not afraid of the dark, I'm not afraid of the dark. Yeah. It doesn't take the fear away, you know. Yeah. It, it seems like fear, it, it's just there. Um, yeah. yeah. And you don't get the answer you want. And with, uh, with the love of the world, you don't get the answer that you want. In some ways, yeah. uh, the symphony is not going to be complete for all of us. And you one of the things that's... Taste, add something we don't yeah. get the answer we want, but we get the answer we need. Yeah. With prayer, we don't yep. always get what we want. God gives us what we need, and, mm-hmm. and, and oftentimes it takes a couple of years for us to, to get that. After the fact, you know, 
I'm glad I didn't get what I wanted, but I got what I needed, you know? Hmm. How do you think people are able to make that turn? Because often we can't differentiate what we want from what we need. I think it only happens in retrospect. I think it's, you know, uh, uh, there's an interesting kind of image in when God talks to Moses, and Moses asks God to see his face. He said, let me see your face. And God says, no, he can't see my face. And he said, nobody can see my face and live. And then he tells Moses, but, he said, I'm going to put you in a cleft by the rock, and I'm going to put my hand over your face, and I'm going to walk past, and I'll take my hand away, and you'll see my back. And so there's been lots of speculation. So what does it mean to see God's back? And Rabbi Tishel, the great Jewish commentator, I love what he said on that. He said, see, we see God in our lives, in, 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 in our past. So if you look back in your life, you will see the finger of God in your life, if you have faith. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you won't see it in the present moment. A lot of times the present moment is too much full of confusion and turmoil and all misunderstanding and so on. Three or four or five years later, you see the wisdom of what happened. You know, see, you see God's back. See, we, we see divine providence. We see God's finger in our lives much more clearly by looking backwards than in the present moment. A lot of times you're sorting stuff out. And, uh, and see, later on, you're going to see, this is what I needed. Not what I wanted, but this is what I needed. You know? Mm. And so when, uh, when Jesus says, our prayers are going to be answered, he <laughs> just knows it. Mm. Not just according to our dictates here, you know. Um, God will give us what we need, not always what we want. Yeah. Because, and even there, because, it, it, because it's not what we want at a superficial level at a much deeper level, a level where we don't understand ourselves, actually that's what we do want. You know? So our needs at a much deeper level are our true wants. You know, but more superficially on the surface, we want pleasure and this and that, and you don't want any tension, you want comfort, you want pain to go away, and so on. Um, you don't want confusion or mess. Um, deeper down, that's not your real want. Deeper down, you want, you know, the depth and the meaning that God is, you know, ordained for you yeah and that's not maybe always what you want it's it's what you need uh you have this quote from Jurig moltman who says that our faith begins at the point where atheists suppose that it must be at an end and about that you go and say you know real faith begins at the exact point where our atheist critics think it ends in darkness and emptiness in religious impotence in our powerlessness to influence how god flows into us that's not the faith that many of us want. We, what we want is not what we get, but what we, what we get is faith where atheists say, this is probably where it's supposed to stop. Um, th- it seems like you're... Yeah, you're yeah, down- yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, it seems like you're downshifting pretty hard from what we want, but I think that is the reality for, for most of us, is that's where real faith does begin, though. Yeah, yeah, because... And, and it's illustrated so clearly with Jesus. See... On the cross, and that's what Moltmann said, on the cross it looks like we've killed God, we've killed faith, everything's darkness, evil has triumphed, godlessness has triumphed. That's the beginning of our Christian faith. You know, um, mm-hmm. um, it, it, you know because, see, you know, you know what's killed on the cross is precisely the God of imagination, not the real God. You know? mm-hmm. see, and, and, and when we're young, we need the imagination of God, and that's what darkness and soul mean. The older we get, the more... We get to a point where, you know, the way we would set it up and the way we imagine God and the way religion should work and so on 
you know, according to our very human things, doesn't work. And that can be kind of, you can almost feel that like an atheism. You can say, well, James, well, you know, God doesn't, you know, you can look at the world and say, God isn't a lord of this world and so on. God is. But, you know, not according to our imagined, the way we imagine it. See, so real faith begins where fairy tales end and where our imagination runs itself aground. Because, you know, the first truth all Christians agree about about God is that God is ineffable, which means you can know God, but you can't think God. And uh, sometimes when I say that, people say, why not? I say, we'll test. Think about the highest number it's possible to count to and tell me when you get there, and you can't get there. <laughs> See, God is infinite. There's no ceiling, mm-hmm. and not only that, there's no beginning. So you, you can't circumscribe God in a thought, because if you can't get to the beginning, you can't get to the end. Mm-hmm. Thoughts have to circumscribe something. See, God is God is knowable. We know God deeply, but we can't imagine God, we can't think God, we can't uh, describe God, and so on, um, other than with, you know, the terms we get from Scripture. You know, like, mm-hmm. uh, well, God is love, and God is faithful, and so on. Uh, and we only know that because Jesus taught that to us. You know, it's a, um, but see, otherwise God would be unknowable. That's what Christian, we call it revelation. You know, like, um, we know God because God has been revealed to us. Otherwise, we wouldn't even know God. I mean, we'd know God in a, like I said, that dark, inchoate way. You have this sense that, uh, you know, faith is certain trust in you. Uh, I read a marvelous book, and I think I quoted it there last year by this... Uh, Annie Riggs, who's atheist, she's dying. She's under cancer treatment, and this, this nurse says, just, honey, you've got to have faith, you've got to have faith. And she said, it bothered me. But then I thought, no, I just trust it's going to be okay. I just trust that someone, see, that is faith. You mm. know, she couldn't put the word God for it, but just kind of, she trusted, I'm going to die, and it's going to be okay. It's just, something's going to take care of me. Now, she couldn't name the something, but, uh, see, that, that's faith. She couldn't imagine it but she knew it. Yeah. And that's the struggle of having faith in a God who, like as you say, God is ineffable. And you say that when we do try to describe who God is, in the book you say it causes uh, God to become a superhero or a dry picture. Yeah. The superhero is like that idealized version of ourself or a dry picture of, like it, it just doesn't do enough work. Why does that seem to be like the only two options that we, or why does that seem like the, the two main ways that we go when we're trying to describe who God is? So look, look it, because it's the only place we can go. See, if you're trying to describe, like, what, what, would, what should the God look like? Well, you have to take you qualities and kind of put the word super to him. You know? So yeah. he's got to be a superman, he's got to be super virtuous, he's got to be super, but still, we're still thinking humanly, you know? And then we... Um, you know, I used to have a, philosopher, a theology professor who was kind of cynical, but he's very bright, and he always, he always used to say, God made us in God's image and likeness, and we've never ceased returning to favor. <laughs> yeah. And then we're, we're creating God in our image and likeness, you know, which is an idol. Um, you know, uh, we can take all of our best qualities, we know they're somehow in God, or we wouldn't have them, but you can't get a picture of God like that, you know. Um, we just can't. You always get a superman. Um, and it's usually it's a man. We don't have a superwoman. You know? so, so, but we, we somehow end up with a superman, um, and, um, but it's not God. It, and then not only that, our, 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 our vision of super stuff is so much formed by Hollywood and superheroes and 
pretty mm-hmm. soon you have, you know, Bruce Willis and Sylvester Stallone and John Wayne, a few people, you know, come and shoot bad guys yeah. as your image of God, you know, um, which incidentally is quite the opposite of the image of Jesus. Remember when he's on the cross and they're saying, if you're the son of God, come off the cross. Show some power. Hollywood would have God mock the cross, then he'd have, he'd have kicked a lot of people under yep. the cross, you know. Yep. The, father, the father let him die. Um, God works. And notice, God, Jesus wasn't born as a superhero. He was born as a baby in the straw who couldn't talk and feed himself. Um, mm-hmm. That's God's power in the world oftentimes. I always tell my students, don't be disappointed with faith. Because I said, God, as you'll meet God in this world, is often thoroughly underwhelming. We'll see. Our, our superheroes are overwhelming. Just look at the Christmas story. You know, they're waiting for this Messiah, and they get a baby who's helpless. It's underwhelming, uh, yeah. Babies have great power, but not earthly power. You know, yeah. um, People watch their language around the baby, and the baby can't even hear. It's <laughs> uh, you know, so true. Baby, Exorcisms in a room. Yeah. Yeah. So, so baby, like God, in some ways, underwhelming in that we want God to be the superhero. What God is yeah. is a baby yeah. in a manger. It's uh, a poor Jewish man crucified on a cross. And so, there's a struggle of this is the God that's realized. This is the God that that's there. This is not the God of my expectations. And so, we have to wrestle with this. And, and you talk about in the book that in the normal scheme of things, the first half of life, we're struggling with the sensuality, the greed, sexuality uh, of the, dare we call it, the pagan world. But the second half of life, we struggle with anger and forgiveness. And the anger is often, and I'm using your words, unconsciously focused on God. In the end, our real struggle isn't with regret, it's with God. Some of us can't conceptualize how we have anger or frustrations with God in the second half of life. Help us connect the dots on that. Okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I, 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 do, I, I do it by, by pointing to a story. Scripture. Okay. You know, the famous story of the prodigal son and the older brother and the prodigal father. You know, we've always called it the parable of the prodigal son. Scholars mm-hmm. say, no, no, there's three people in there, and they're all equally important. It's the prodigal son, it's the older brother, and it's the prodigal father. Yep. But notice in this story, you know, it almost tells us the first half of like the prodigal son. What's he struggling with, you know? restlessness and sex and pleasure and so on and drugs and whatever. Okay. What the older brother's struggling with, notice he's home, he's doing all the work, but he can't go into the house. The house means the father's house. Mm-hmm. He's outside because of anger, and the anger is precisely about, you know, uh, the younger guy and all the parties about him and I'm doing all the work and so on. See, that is really a, a struggle, not just for Christians, for good moral people as they get older, um, uh, there's this whole struggle to 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 forgive and let go. The it's I, I biblically symbolized. This is the, the the anger of the older brother, the prodigal son. It's also resentment of Martha. You know, when Martha says to, to Jesus, "I'm doing all the work. She's not doing anything," and so on. The, uh, yeah. And it, it there's lots of good psychological literature, like Alice Miller's book, the, the drama of the gift of child. Gift of child was the the sensitive person who gets angry when they get older. But you just see it in old people. I hear it in older people's confessions. I struggle with it myself, you know. When, when you get older, you, you get a sense of where life precisely hasn't been fair. I always tell people humorously, you, you, get, you realize that your mother did love your sister better than you. <laughs> which, yeah. which, 
didn't want to admit earlier, you know, and see mm-hmm. the numbers come out. And, and we end up, and you see it so often, this is a real struggle for us as Christians, not to be judgmental, not to be bitter, not to be angry, you know. Like, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church right now, we have a lot of people really angry at Pope Francis because he's preaching mercy, and he, well, people should go to communion, you know, and they say, well, they're not worthy to go to communion, and I'm worthy to go to communion. That's the older brother of the prodigal son, you know. These are good, sincere people worrying that somehow we're going to give God's grace away cheaply, that, that, you know, we, you know, I've earned, but he hasn't, and so on. Um, you know, your figure there, Luke, is the older brother of the prodigal son. And notice mm-hmm. the story ends. The story doesn't end with the celebration of the young guy. It ends with the father pleading the older brother to come to the house. And incidentally, there's quite a word there. When, when he comes out and he says, son, you know, that, that is the, the way that he says, uh, you know, why aren't you here? That's the word when you read in Scripture, you know, when the, the 12-year-old Jesus gets lost in the temple and, and Joseph and Mary find him, that's the word that Mary said to her son. She's been anxious. Son, we've been anxious about you, you know. And that's the exact phrase that the father of the prodigal son says to the older brother. to son, you know, like, I'm worried about you. You know, like, I want you to come into the house. I want you to celebrate. You know, come back with the family. And notice he's outside of the house, not by moral indiscretion. He's out of the house by anger. Um, hmm. Some of his anger is at moral indiscretion. You know, he's angry that he's doing all this work and he's keeping a moral life and it seems nobody else's. You know, uh, that's a struggle. Yeah. You say in the book that just as smoke follows fire, forgiveness follows gratitude. Gratitude ultimately undergirds and fuels all genuine virtue. It seems like sometimes we would have to forgive, and then finally, after I forgive you, then I can become grateful. Why do you think it's gratitude as the foundation? Why does that come first, and then forgiveness comes second? No, because a lot of times when we try to forgive, and it doesn't come out of gratitude, we put conditions to it. It's kind of, I forgive, but I don't forget. Well, then it means you haven't forgiven. <laughs> you know, or we, we somehow forgive out of guilt or something else, and then it's still inside of us. Okay. It's only when our hearts are full of joy, so on, something we can say, I forgive you. You know, uh, I can let this go because there's something greater inside of me. Love is inside of me. If I let it go because of a moral dictate or because I'm scared to go to hell or whatever, I'm still not letting it go. You know, I'm, I'm just pushing it to the side. You know, that we can only really let hurt go when we feel love and we feel we feel warmth, we feel grace, we feel, uh, you know, those are all words the same way. Gratitude is grace. Um, hmm. And when we say, even the old expression, to err is human, to forgive is divine, it's, it's you know, we, we need grace. We just can't do that. It's, it, you know, people who get that, the clearest, are people in, in, in 12-step programs, you know, uh, mm-hmm. where they know, you remember when, 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 Peter, Jesus says it's, it's, impo- it's hard for a rich man to go to heaven, camel, go through the eye of a needle. And Peter said, if that's the case, it's impossible. And Jesus said, it is for humans, but not for God. See, so that there's things we can't do on our own, and forgiveness is one of them. You know, it, it, we somehow have to be warm from the inside, by community, by grace, and so on. And we can let it go when there's something warmer inside of us that's replaced it. Hmm. Ah, that's good. 
That's good. Well, I really enjoyed this book. Uh, titles Wrestling with God. And I uh, appreciate you taking the time uh, to come on the podcast and talk about it again. So thank you so much, sir. Luke, thanks, thanks for having me. And I'm, 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 I'm thrilled that this book is reaching into, uh, you know, hands like yours and into pulpits and churches like yours. Well, uh, the honor is mine, and I'll do my part in helping to undo the 500 years of misunderstanding between our denominations. Yeah, and please rip off all of it. <laughs> okay, well, in that case, I will be doing that uh, very well. So, much okay. thanks. Thank Luke. I appreciate this. Thanks, sir. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.